1 Corinthians 13. Whoa. Um, it's neither a candy store nor a torture chamber. Uh, though for some it seems like one or the other. Paul begins, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul told the Corinthians, as we saw last week, that they were the body of Christ and that they should not be surprised at the diversity among them, that they were also different. Um, we are not all the same. We're not supposed to be the same. Each person has her and his own place. Uh, her and his own responsibility and, and gifts. After listing a variety of people and their role in the church, Paul says at the end of chapter 12, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Uh, excellent here has to do with superiority. Uh, it has to do with a large degree of, um, oh, good grief, of betterness. How's that? Now, um, up until this point, I've concentrated on the mystery of Christian spirituality, the invisible foundation of this letter that uh, Paul has mentioned it at the beginning. He's mentioned that secret wisdom and the, the work of the Spirit that goes unseen and unheard and the world knows nothing about. He says the natural person cannot perceive it, uh, but the spiritual person can. Uh, and we've, we've been talking about our spiritual life, this, this thing that's hidden so much from us that you know we try to pen penetrate everything with knowledge and figuring it out and analyzing and examining. And this doesn't even make itself available to us that way. You, you can't take it into a lab and put it under a microscope. You can't even use statistical analysis to figure out anything about the work of God's spirit in our life. It's also invisible and intangible. And for that reason, so difficult for us. And, uh, and, and in comes faith. But to build faith, this kind of faith is not easy. But this is all underneath the surface of his, of his text now, and it's what we've been drawing out of each chapter. The, the transcendence of God, the, the hiddenness of our own spirits, and a secret wisdom not known to the rulers of this age. But now we're going to see how that hidden life of God's spirit within us is manifest in our ordinary world. Now, first I want to look at a negative example. And what I mean is, uh, how, you, how can you tell 
if the hidden life of the spirit is not present? Since we can't see it in a person, how can we tell? How, how is it manifest or not manifest? And I'm going back to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul has told them, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people who belonged to this world, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready because you still live as the people of this world live. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not people of this world and behaving only in a human way? Okay, what do we learn here? We learn that where there's jealousy and strife, this is evidence that these are not spiritual people. Uh, this is negative evidence that the life of the Spirit is not giving expression through their actions. And we could, you know, add a lot of things to that list. There's physical evidence of what lies below the surface. This is what Paul is saying, that a person without life in the Spirit acts like any other human person. We act naturally. We act instinctually. So what evidence is there that the person has life in the, spirit, in the spirit? How do we take the spiritual pulse of ourselves? A lot of Christians assume that the supernatural comes to the surface in signs and wonders. And there are people who are constantly praying for a miracle. Uh, some because they need a miracle, and others because they think that a miracle is going to convince people of the, of the truth of God. Um, now, the, the word miracle appears more in the life and ministry of Jesus than anywhere else in the New Testament. I think that's significant. But it's also obvious that whatever a miracle has to say is not explicit and it is not necessarily convincing. For example, if Jesus performs a miracle in casting out a demon, there are those who stand by and see a miracle and others say, no, this is magic. This is satanic magic. He's drawing power from Beelzebul. So... Uh, a miracle is not definitive. Um, there are people, though, who think that God only reveals himself to the world through miracles, through, through plagues like those of Egypt, or divine healing, walking on water, that sort of thing. Those spe spectacular phenomena, however, are not the normal Christian life. And anyone who who normalizes miracles, who tells you that, that it is the normal Christian life, is trying to sell you something. Miracles are a rarity. Paul makes that point clear. In the prior chapter, he asked, are all prophets? It's a rhetorical question. He, he expects a no answer. Are all teachers? Uh, are all apostles? He asks, 
Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? The answer is no. Uh, We don't all work miracles. In the Roman Catholic Church, miracles are what are required of a saint. Uh, Now, in that tradition, the saint is a very superior type of believer for their devotion. And I mean, the original saints were the martyrs, those who died for their faith, so devoted to God they were. Um, But in order to be canonized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, one has to work uh, multiple miracles. But again, uh, we're talking about something extraordinary and that few of us will actually see in our lifetime at least that overt kind of miracle. We see other miracles, though, don't we? Uh, A changed life is a miracle. Frederick Schmidt said, what we need are not signs and wonders, but a deeper determination to nurture the presence of God in the midst of the commonplace, to find the sacred in the ordinary. He says, When we take the miraculous and the exceptional to be the measure of God's presence, rather than think of God as an enlivening presence throughout creation, we do not make the world sacred. Instead, we confine God to its margins and gaps. The key to seeing God at work in our world lies not in defining the events that reflect the movement of God, but in what Paul describes as the renewing of the mind. And I agree with him up to that last line uh, because uh, the renewing of the mind is also interior and physically invisible. So when uh, Paul asks, do all work miracles? The answer is no, but all love. And that's what he's coming to. That the evidence of the, the supernatural life that we have is love. And that love is the embodiment of God's spirit in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit is here today. How do we know? Love is the embodiment of the spirit in our community this morning, the love we have for each other, the love between us, and how that love extends to others, how even as we sit here, we think of others and the way they're meaningful to us and the needs that they have and how we're concerned about those needs. Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is the evidence. By this, all people will know that you're mine if you have love for one another. Any identification of Christian spirituality, regardless of how 
enlightened a person may be or whether someone is performing miracles falls short if there is no evidence of love like the Lord's love. And what does Jesus' love look like? Well, it looks like the cross. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Paul gives more specific details of what Jesus' love looks like here in chapter 13 of Romans or of 1 Corinthians. He begins by exposing the emptiness of our spiritual ambitions or religious ambitions. Uh, there were believers in Corinth who made a big deal of speaking in tongues. And if you, if you don't know that language, uh, then let me, let me just say that when the Spirit of God first rushed into the lives of, of the Christians in this freshly formed community, they began spontaneously to speak in languages they had never learned. And there were people from around the world who were there, and they, they heard what was being spoken in their own language. And they said, how do these Galileans know our dialects? Uh, so speaking in tongues uh, became this, uh, this particular phenomenon of praise and thanksgiving. Paul's going to talk about this in chapter 14, so I'll just leave it there for now. There were some Corinthians who were speaking in tongues. And, and they must have thought that they were superior to other Christians. Paul asks, do all speak in tongues? Uh, again, in that famous list. And the answer is no. And, uh, and so Paul tells those who speak in tongues, well, without love, you're just making noise. It doesn't matter if you're speaking in another human language or an angelic language, if there is such a thing. You're just making noise. Others were impressed with the gifts associated with the apostles, uh, prophetic power, understanding mysteries. Paul's already told us that he was a steward of the mysteries of God, uh, having all knowledge. And I'm sure that the, the Corinthians prided themselves not only on their theological knowledge, but their philosophical knowledge, perhaps their the, what they understood of science uh, at that time. And then Paul jumps to the supreme act of faith Jesus mentioned. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it will be removed and thrown into the sea. Paul says, if I had all faith to move mountains uh, without love, he says, I'm not special. I'm nothing. I haven't done anything special. And what I've done is meaningless. If there's not love in it. Well, of course, everyone is impressed by the devotion of martyrs. But even that, Paul says, without love, wins nothing, gains nothing. So, so there's this nothingness that he presents to us of any holy act, any marvel we can perform, any devotion that we can show to God, it's meaningless if it's not generated by love, if it's not consistent 
with love. It did not take Christians very long to adopt the attitude of the Pharisees, and that has been with us ever since. Uh, For Christians to assume that that their knowledge of Jesus made them superior to other people, or that they could perform acts of devotion and charity without love, as long as they're doing the right thing. It didn't matter if they cared about anybody, actually. you know, just do your religious duty. And that is the essence of ugly religion. Because if you can perform a religious act without love, you can certainly perform an irreligious act without love. In fact, you can perform an act of charity with a mean spirit. You can humiliate the person you're showing charity to if you don't love that person and and show them kindness out of love. So Paul exposes the pretensions of our piety and the false piety of our pretensions. Love alone gives any action its spiritual value. Love alone makes a person's spiritual life meaningful, makes it something rather than nothing. In verses 4 through 7, love is personified. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know what I mean by personified, right? Uh, You take something that, uh, you know, is a concept, and you give it the uh, attributes of a person, a personhood. Love's not a person, uh, it's something else. But here, love is personified. Uh, It appears as an active agent. It is, it does not, it is not. It bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures. And uh, of course, Paul is describing how love expresses itself in us. It's also how love expressed itself in Jesus. When we were young Christians, my friends and I found that we could insert the name of Jesus in the place of love in this chapter, and it was all true. It all perfectly described him. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not boastful or resentful and and so on. Maybe, maybe Paul personifies love because we are supposed to be love personified. I'm dropping these gems and pausing so that you can write them down. Um, now, there, um, there may be 
another possible reason why Paul uses this form of personification. I don't think that he's telling us this is how you're supposed to love. In fact, it was so missed a point. If we made a list of everything he says about love and, and make it our New Year's resolution come January 1st. And the reason I don't think he's doing that is it would be way too much. It would be setting the bar way too high. I think that when Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you, sets the bar too high. It shows us what God is after. And I think that what Paul is saying here is this is what God wants to work into your life. This kind of love. Do you want that? You know, well, some days, yes. Other days, I don't know. Does it mean I have to get off the couch? Does it mean I can't watch the World Series? Does it mean, uh, I mean, what what are the sacrifices involved? There's a cross here in this kind of love anyway. And what would that cross be? I mean, I don't have to move to New Guinea, do I? And, And live in the jungles there and be a missionary. Love is the summit of Paul's insight into that secret wisdom. Christian spirituality grows love, and love grows our spirituality. Again, Frederick Schmidt said, a love of God and a romance with God nurtures in us a capacity to see God where God is present. In other words, it it develops our spiritual sightedness and we begin to notice. We begin to be aware of God's presence, especially where he's manifesting it to us, where he's showing it to us. I don't know if you saw the sunrise this morning, but I mean, you know, sometimes it's like, oh God, this is so overdone. I mean, this is so over the top. And that's how this morning was. I mean, it stretched across the whole sky, the beauty of the sun um, being absorbed by the clouds and reflecting its various lights or colors. Jesus' new commandment, love one another, has a really different feel to it than if we were commanded, be moral. And I want you to think about that difference because a lot of Christianity is telling us, be moral people, be ethical. And Jesus is saying, love like I've loved. It has a different motivational energy than a long list of of rules. Love is the beautiful face of righteousness, uh, the true face of holiness. I do not want to say a whole lot about verse 7. I think it speaks for itself, but it really is the essence of a mature spirituality. Love endures the lows and the lulls, the disappointments and the drudgeries. It endures uh, unfulfilled dreams, unmet needs, physical or emotional distance, Love persists at times when we would rather that it not. 
And other times we're pleased that we find it's still thriving. Love has no limits. It endures everything. It bears everything. It travels everywhere. It can build bridges. It can also set boundaries. But it does not do either one only for its own sake. Love is the most godlike expression of a human life. In verses 8 through 11, Paul is simply saying that love will outlast all other virtues. All the gifts and ministries listed in chapter 12, all these things that nurture and deepen our spirits, all the things that hold our lives together now will come to an end. They will no longer be needed. Like old toys, we'll pack them into a box and never open it again, never even think about it. Love, on the other hand, is infinite and eternal. Of course it's infinite and eternal because God is love. The three great triads of Christian spirituality, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. E. Stanley Jones was an open-minded missionary in India. In fact, he did not build churches. He built ashrams. He once had the opportunity, well, more than once, he met with Mahatma Gandhi, but he had the opportunity one time to read to him 1 Corinthians 13. And when he was done, Gandhi said, that is the most beautiful statement I've ever heard. So, So what will we do now? How will we get there? I have only one idea. We have to receive God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. First John. 419. There was a time, um, this was actually before I was 20 years old, there was a time when we thought it was important to get the word out on the streets and we would go street witnessing. That is cold call evangelism, selling Jesus to strangers. And uh, for a while, there were, there were a group of us who met on Balboa Island in an apartment there. And we'd share together, pray together, and then hit the streets. And then we'd come back and we'd talk about it and pray for the people to whom we had shared our faith. And I remember one time these two girls came back and they were kind of upset. And, uh, and so we're sharing our experiences and they said, well... We were sitting on a wall, and this guy walked by, and so we said, Jesus loves you, and he turned his head and said, everybody loves me, (laughs) and that that upset them, Um, but, but we 
we need to allow God to love us because some of us believe nobody loves me. And if, if anyone saw me for what I really am, they wouldn't be able to love me. And God, more than anyone, sees you for who you really are. And he does love you. He loves you to every inch of your being. Let Jesus love you in the way that he loves. In, in his giving of himself for you and to you. In his, his concern for you, his, his interest in you his total devotion to you. Allow Jesus to, to love you that way. You let Jesus love you when you accept his forgiveness. When you say, okay, I really am forgiven and I can let go of the guilt. I can let go of the shame. I can stop saying I'm a bad person. I was with a friend one time he was trying to get this through to me. And he said, okay, look, Chuck, you're a good person. And I said, uh. And he said, all right, you're a decent person. <laughs> and I said, all right, I'll qualify that, but okay. <laughs> you allow Jesus to love you when you walk in nature and its beauty speaks to you and you open your heart to it. You allow Jesus to love you when you trust him with your anxieties and believe that you really can be anxiety-free now. You allow Jesus to love you when you remember that all of the good things in your life are a gift. And sometimes I remind the Lord of what I don't have. Uh, you know, I've been asking for a long time now, Lord, and then here I am sitting in this comfortable chair in my nice home and my needs met and I forget all of the things that he has given me. Or I go and visit my grandchildren and they say something silly or do something creative. Okay, Adriana is 11 years old and she is constantly working on projects. I had three small little gift boxes I had been given over the years, and I took them to their house because I knew Adriana would do something creative with them, and she did. Uh, on Friday, uh, she said, Grandpa, uh, oh no, she didn't say anything. She was in the kitchen, and usually... I fix everything for them, and she's got things out on the scene. I said, what are you doing, Adriana? She said, I'm making myself a sandwich. I said, do you want my help? No. <laughs> Can you do it okay? Yes. And I said, all right. So a little while later, I went into the kitchen, and here were these pieces of bread that she had cut with a cookie cutter, and she was making the cutest little elephant sandwiches. And you know, I was pissed off at first. 
what are you doing? Who's going to clean up your mess? And look at all this wasted bread here. This crust, you know, this is good for you. Um, I mean, I didn't react that way. It was just an instant thought that passed through my mind. Um, but then I thought, how creative of her. Uh, she, she has to make her sandwich this way because her mind won't let her make an ordinary sandwich. Give yourself a time out. Relax. Deep breaths. Feel God's love. And receive it into every part of your body and your being. That's how you let God love you. If you let God love you like that, he'll work his love into your heart and you'll start to love like that too. Would you stand with me, please? You know, we really are family here today. If... uh, If you don't know that yet, get to know us a little bit better. Now may the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.